Hello, and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason. With me, as usual, is Rich. Hello, Rich. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, congratulations on being the named uh, the new president of basketball operations for the Los Angeles Lakers. Must be Thank a, a you. big yeah. honor for you. Yeah, yeah. It, w- it wasn't hard either. You just got to kind of get in there and then work your way through the the organization. And then you know, one week you're I'm on the panel of you know ESPN NBA countdown. The next week I'm the GM of the uh, Lakers. So that's pretty yeah. good. It's, uh, it's a uh, or president. I, I not GM. President of basketball operations, of course. Right. You know, comes right, with yeah. the, it comes with the title. Comes with more money. So it, it definitely is pretty cool. But yeah, what a uh, what a what a coup by magic. Yeah. It, you know, it we, is. We've, right. we've added light to the uh, we, we uh, you know a few months ago did the the episode of you know when Magic requested a trade because everybody's got Magic as this kind of like happy go lucky like ah shucks kind of guy but like ah deep down there Magic can 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 he can work his way through uh, whatever he needs to get done too he's a, he's still a businessman at heart I mean definitely these days you know that he's a shrewd businessman but yeah this was a this is an all time great coup by Magic Johnson yeah he can be ruthless if if necessary you know that's uh, something we found out about Magic over the years so. Um, yeah, so, so this made us think about other legendary players who hit the trifecta, of course, you know, had legendary um, NBA careers among the best players of all time, also were head coaches and also were team executives. So um, it, it's not that uncommon. There, there are you know, dozens of, of players, you know, just r- r- ranging from run of the mill NBA players to, you know, great players. But in terms of absolute superstars, there's really only a handful of you know players I think that you, know, you can plausibly make that claim to have held all three positions. Yeah, and, and one of the things too you'll notice, um, we'll, we'll, we're going to discuss obviously the stars here, and then later kind of list some of the other guys that, that did it. A lot of them you will notice are older. Like it does not happen all that often anymore. I mean, a lot of the guys are are seventies and eighties guys, like former you know decent players that that moved up or whatever. It is happening less and less as as you know teams realize that the pre- well some some teams but not all teams realize that you know very often it, it's probably a better idea for your GM and your you know, basketball operations team to be not necessarily guys that were really good at basketball, but guys that actually understand, you know, the business of basketball and the business of player acquisition and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So we are getting a little bit less of that, but you will notice that a lot of the seventies, a lot of the eighties, and, and of course, you know, even in the sixties too, a lot of those will come up and, and those type of guys that, that were players, then coaches, then executives, it's becoming way more specialized these days and it's much harder. But then again, we have, you know, two coaches in the league right now that, that, you know, went, Kind of a, 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 a different route, like a Steve Kerr and a Fred Hoiberg, you know, went from player to executive, then to coach or whatever, which is very strange. Usually it's the other, you know, the player coach executive. So uh, it's just kind of strange how, how it's sort of evolving uh, this trifecta over over the years. Yeah. And um, of course, you know, players did not make the kind of money that they were making, you know, that they're making now in previous decades. So it made sense. To, you know, you could have a still a fairly lucrative salary as a coach or as an executive or now, you know, you know, especially if you're a star player, you've made so much money in your career. You don't necessarily need to you know, have those positions. You can do other things. You don't necessarily have to work, you know, all that kind of stuff. Did you see Alan Iverson's quote this week about uh, why he would not get into coaching? Uh, it had something to do with the, uh, the the fact that he did not want to coach anyone who was making more money than he was. <laughs> exactly, which I thought was just perfect. Allen Iverson, uh, given you know his uh, potential financial issues, which sure. uh, are fun, but no, I just like that because yeah, again, that that's it right there. Like 
he's a guy that why would he want to coach like that doesn't that's not very fun like it's not like he needs to supplement his income and coaching is a terrible thing nobody likes to coach like it's awful you you don't sleep you're on the road you're watching film like people that love it love it but like it's gonna be really hard to find an ex-player who who made you know 150 million dollars over their career 200 million dollars or whatever in in the career that then when they're done goes yeah you know what i'd love to you know make a quarter of that and work you know quadruple the amount of time and 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 hours that i did as a player i mean it's gonna be impossible to find many guys or not impossible it's gonna be hard to find guys that really want to do that too especially moving up the coaching ladder too because it's it's harder these days to to just kind of get a job right away you you know many of these guys will will mention here retired and they got a job you know like oh cool you know their franchise then gave them a job some guys were player coaches you know things like that where now you got to move up the ladder you look at guys like um you know, a Tyron Lue who who had to really work hard for about ten years or so. Jerry Stackhouse now is, is still a D League coach. Uh, guys really have to. I mean, Brandon Roy is a guy who's going up through the, the high school ranks right now. So it's 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 just not this immediate thing where like you retire and then the team just bestows upon you a coaching position. You got to work your way up. Uh, you, you know, a guy like a Patrick Ewing is still working his way up the ladder as well. So it's just it's a little bit different now than than it was uh, you know many many years ago too, to 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 get to that level too as a head coach. Yeah, and there are of course exceptions to that. Obviously, Jason Kidd, Derek Fisher. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, but yes, I, I, I think for the most part, there is a reluctance to immediately have somebody, especially moving into the you know GM or president of basketball operations. I mean, I, I think that's uh, become a more, you know, expected to be more of a complicated um Job, you're supposed to have a more in-depth knowledge of the uh, game than you know a player is likely to have a more broad knowledge of the game than a player is likely to have. You know, coming out of retirement, coach, you can, can be a little bit different, but obviously that transition has been generally rough for um, for you know most guys who've tried to do it you know more immediately in recent years. So mm-hmm. uh, probably better off uh, you know, d- developing some other knowledge and developing you know a, a different base before you uh, plunge into that. Yeah, absolutely. So first we have uh, – well, I guess we'll go through Magic Johnson a little bit because he uh, did coach the uh, Lakers in addition, of course, to his uh, acclaimed career of um, you know three-time MVP, five-time NBA champion – 10-time All-NBA, obviously uh, Hall of Fame, you know, one of the greatest players of all time, possibly the greatest point guard of all time, um, probably. So um, he, you know, we don't really need to talk a little about, about his playing career. I think everyone listening to this has a pretty good sense of it. But his time coaching may not be as well known. <laughs> no, uh, he was hired March 23rd, 1994. Uh, he replaced Larry Fund, um, who went uh, 108 and 119 as, as coach of the Lakers. Yeah. Uh, before that, uh, Magic was hired uh, basically a handful of games left in the season. Um, what was interesting, though, and and of course we know you know the, the story of uh, Magic, but it feels like he's still. I mean, he's only 34 at this time, which still feels so young. And I know, obviously, of course, you know he had to retire early, but for a guy that started, you know, in the late 70s, you know, 1979 or whatever, for him to still only be 34, it just seemed like he was so young still at this time. So you know, 34 year old head coach in Magic Johnson. Um, what's interesting though is this had been building a little bit uh, of him trying to be a coach. Uh, he attempted to come back as a player, of course, in 1993. Um, there were some issues and fears among. Uh, you know, addition, uh, you know, other players of, you know, we're still in this weird, you know, now it, it seems like commonplace, but, you know, then it was still this worry of, okay, well, I don't really know, you know, he's HIV positive, like, what does that mean for me? What if he gets a cut? Like, what if he spits? You know, all this weird, I mean, we, we kind of forget now because then we kind of laugh at it now, but there, there were real fears of, like, we don't know how to get, you know, how this is happening and what all the stuff going on. So there were, there were players that were, you know, I wouldn't say rightfully so. I mean, they were pretty ignorant to it, but still that, that didn't want to play with Magic Johnson, so he, he aborted, you know, his idea of, of coming back in 1993, um, and then, you know, was intrigued about the possibilities of coaching the league, um, 
this is a quote from uh, the New York Times article that came out when uh, when he did get hired uh, and said that he uh, he reportedly rejected opportunities to coach the Lakers during the last offseason as well as the Atlanta Hawks. Now, that would have been awesome. Definitely, obviously. Uh, it, well, I guess with the way it turned out, maybe it wouldn't have been awesome. <laughs> maybe but not, it, but still. But, uh, like, nice the note. aesthetics of Magic Johnson as the Atlanta Hawks head coach is... is it would have been you know, interesting footnote in uh, Hawks <laughs> history for sure. Uh, and then Johnson had also attempted to get involved in ownership during this time because he wanted to get back into the game, uh, of course, even though he couldn't play. Uh, his bid to become part of the new franchise in Toronto was thwarted when the team was awarded to another group. So he wanted to get involved in kind of the ownership group of Toronto. Of course, they moved to another group, and, and we'll, we'll talk about a, a man who uh, became one of their executives later that was a former player. We'll, we'll get to him in a little bit. But anyway, now Magic, the coach, they won their first game with Magic as the head coach, 110-101. It was a victory over the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, it was interesting about this team as well. They had five former Magic teammates on the roster. You had Vladdy Divac, Eldon Campbell, Tony Smith, Curse Rambis, and James Worthy. This is the final year of James Worthy. Uh, also, former teammate Michael Cooper was brought in as an assistant coach because Magic, you know, needed some somebody that he uh, knew well on the bench with him. Um, Lakers, they played well initially. They won five of their first six games under Johnson, but then lost the next five. And then he announced that he was resigning after the season, <laughs> which I guess he uh, did not enjoy losing all that much. So then they uh, they finished the season on a 10-game losing streak. And unfortunately, Johnson's final record as head coach was 5-11. and 11. So uh, he stated then afterwards, uh, this is again from a New- another New York Times piece, that it was never his dream to coach and that he instead choose to, uh, chose uh, to purchase a 5% stake in the team in June of 1994. So he said, I never wanted to coach. Who said that? that coaching is yeah. stupid. I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like... So that was the uh, Magic Johnson coaching. Yeah. And and there were stories about, you know, that team was notoriously immature. Um, Cedric Sabalos, I I believe Nick Van Exel at the beginning of his career, just a lot of guys that Magic felt you didn't really have the professionalism that he was looking for, the, uh, you know, the maturity that he was looking for and and felt the game had sort of changed from, you know, his generation to this, you know, new younger generation that he felt was more entitled and, you know, and a little bit less appreciative of the, um, you know, past struggles of the game and the sacrifices and the professionalism and blah, blah, which, you know, sounds like uh, the type of, you know, anti-millennial talk that we uh, get these days, but (laughs) uh, Magic may have had a point. No, and, and yeah, and then we came back to play, um, you know, a, a year or so later, there, there was also those same issues, and he was vocal about it, too, like calling yeah. those guys out, particularly Sabalos and, and Nick Van Exel. I know he called out on multiple occasions for just not having the, the drive that he had, not having the maturity that he had, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was not something that went away um, after this year, so... So looking at some of the stars on Magic's level, uh, Elgin Baylor, um, of course, the great Lakers star of the uh, 60s, uh, 11-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA, tremendous uh, scorer and tremendous, you know, all around, just did everything player above the rim and uh, could do everything, of course. Uh, As a player, uh, famously went to eight finals and was never able to win a championship with the uh, Lakers. Uh, so after he retired in 72, right before the uh, Lakers you know, went on a 33 game winning streak and had the up until that point, best season ever with the, you know, Will Chamberlain, Jerry West and, you know, the guys, um, he became uh, an assistant coach under the, uh, New Orleans jazz with, uh, Butch Van Bredikoff, who had been his, uh, who had been his Lakers coach for a couple seasons. Uh, he ended up taking over, um, midway through the 77 season. Um, the, uh, jazz actually, uh, uh, he had a 21 and 35 record, but they did improve uh, generally with with him, especially the play of a uh, Pete Maravich, who averaged more than 30 points per game that season, and um, and Gail Goodrich was there as well. And it, and the next season they would um, 
actually looked like they were going to be making the playoffs. Then Maravich had a serious a knee injury, and at, at that point, the team completely fell fell apart. Uh, Baylor's uh, coaching record: two full seasons after that, eighty six and one thirty five overall. Obviously, the injuries to Maravich and other struggles, um, you know, depressed that a little bit. Um, then he uh, he coached the Jazz for the final year in New Orleans, and then after uh, they moved to Utah, uh, replaced Elgin with uh, Tom Nasalki. Yeah, and then Baylor uh, moved to the executive uh, branch of the NBA world. Uh, 1986, he was hired by the Los Angeles Clippers, the team's vice president of basketball operations. I uh, was there for 22 years, and the Clippers, unfortunately, during that time, managed only two winning seasons and a master win loss record of 607 and 111, or, or what was it, 1,153. So, uh, not, not great for the, uh, the old Clippers there. Uh, also, only one playoff series win during that time. Uh, it wasn't all bad, though. Uh, of course, that one playoff series win, uh, Baylor was an executive of the year in 2006. Uh, as the Clippers won their first playoff series in Los Angeles behind a young core of uh, Elton Brand, Corey Maggette, Chris Kamen, and also they added veterans, you know, uh, Katino Mobley and Sam Cassell to a team that that, that worked out uh, a fun little team, but uh, of course did not really have a real long time as, as being a good team. And but uh, at that, at least that point, they looked like a fun team that that maybe had a few years in front of them, but uh, did, definitely did not. And it did not end all that well. Of course, it's the Clippers, so it's not surprising. But uh, in February 2009, Baylor filed an employee. Uh, employment discrimination lawsuit against the Clippers, team owner Donald Sterling, team pre- uh, president Andy Rosner, and the NBA. He alleged that he was underpaid during his tenure with the team and then fired because of his age and race. Uh, Baylor later dropped the racial discrimination claims in the suit, uh, and the remaining claims were rejected by a Los Angeles state court jury uh, by unanimous vote of 12 to 0. But still, there had always been sort of rumblings of uh, of what happened when Baylor was there and, and kind of the mistreatment uh, of Baylor, um, possibly as the Clippers. And, and initially, when this came out, I know there were a lot of people that were like, oh, and then, you know, as more and more stuff about Donald Sterling came out, it was like, oh, Elgin was, was probably right. It was probably pretty terrible to work for Donald Sterling for all those years. But uh, 22 years uh, as a Clippers exec is pretty cool uh, for Elgin. And, and during that time, uh, you know, made some good moves, and, uh, made a lot of bad moves, too, because they weren't a very good team at all. Yeah, I, the best moves that I found were um, uh, trading Danny Ferry, who they had selected as the number two um, overall pick and did not want to play in uh uh, the, for the Clippers, ended up actually going to uh, Italy and playing. Um, they traded for uh, Ron Harper and a couple of uh, a couple of first round picks and a second round pick. And Ron Harper ended up performing very well for the uh, Clippers, although he eventually decided he didn't want to play there either. Um, and then, a common uh, theme, unfortunately, yes. and, and then the other one would be uh, trading um, Marco Yarick to the Minnesota Timberwolves for San Cassell and a 2012 first round pick, which ended up being Austin Rivers. So it was. Um, I, I was actually selected by the Pelicans and then uh, ended up going back to the uh, Clippers later. But uh, so obviously getting Sam Cassell for Marco York just by itself, not to mention that pick is uh, quite a uh, haul uh, and ended up leading to, as you mentioned, the, the the best years that they had. Unfortunately, that was cut short by Elton Brand's injury and other uh, issues. Cassell getting old. Yeah. And, and, and uh, there were some disagreements there. Usual Donald Sterling stuff. Um, the, the, you There's a litany of moves that you could uh, say were the um, worst move. Probably um, selected. Uh, Michael Olakandi um, first overall 1998 was probably the uh, worst move so we're actually uh, I'm going to be talking to um, McMinnis who wrote the book The Curse which is uh, about the uh, Clippers um, saga it's basically going going through the Clippers year by year it, it, I'm um, most way through the book and it's fantastic I'll be finished with it of course when I do the interview so you get the chance to hear a lot more about the uh, Clippers struggles in an episode next week 
Yes, and, and for people that are wondering as well, one of the worst Clippers trades was not a Baylor one. It was the uh, when they traded. Um, I think it was they, so. They, they, I think they wanted. Uh, they got like Jamaro Moon and Mo Williams <laughs> and traded like a you know a future 2011 first round pick in Baron Davis and that uh, future 2011 first round pick ended up being Kyrie Irving. So not, yeah, <laughs> not great. But uh, that was not a Baylor one, though. So that, that's okay. That was uh, that was someone else. So. Yeah. That was yeah, afterward. Yeah, that that uh, the um, Neil O'Shea, I believe, that was. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that well, ended up his be- being close. his, but he's, he's usually pretty good. But eh, you know, that one was not a great. Well, one. I make mistakes. <laughs> yes, you really need Mo Williams, though. You got to get Mo Williams. Yes. Whatever you can do to get Mo, you got to do it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mo Mo. Um, <laughs> so next we have Larry Bird, uh, also you know one of the uh, great players of all times in the eighties. You know, uh, it'll be of course be fun with you know him running the Pacers and uh, Magic running the Lakers and the idea of them um, collaborating on trades and uh, so forth. Um, you know, three times Isaiah to, Isaiah to get another team. We're all set. <laughs> there we go. Maybe Dominique could start. You know, just maybe that maybe someone wants to hire Dominique. I don't know. Like, yeah. Who? Get Atlanta, all the, uh, maybe you know what are you guys doing? They're just kind of spinning their wheels. Anyway, yeah, Mike Budenholzer, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> get other right, yeah, get other Coach Bud, get, right? Let's get yeah. Dominique in there. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, get all the '80s uh, icons back. Yeah, in. Like, maybe, get, maybe everybody just goes crazy. Maybe this is the beginning of every team just being like, "Well, forget it. Why not?" Like, yeah. The, I hope. I actually kind of secretly hope that is what. Get I the old gunslinger in, you know. So. <laughs> um, uh, so he had, of course, you know, three-time NBA champion, three-time league MVP, you know, all, all the uh, accolades, one of the great uh, players of all times. And then, you know, he uh, after he retired, he sort of transitioned into a um, special assistant role for the uh, Celtics for uh, for a few years, and then eventually made his way onto the Indiana Pacers. Yeah, in nineteen ninety-seven, he accepted the uh, position of head coach of the Indiana Pacers. Um, Here's a quote from a New York Times article as well. Uh, Larry Bird elected yesterday to return to his native Indiana to coach the Pacers instead of remaining in Boston where Rick Pitino initiated a new era by taking over as coach and president of the Celtics. And if you ever need a, uh, a shock of all shocks is look at what Rick Pitino signed for, uh, how much money they gave Rick Pitino to be the coach and president of the Boston Celtics in 1997. It is uh, pretty startling. But uh, anyway, uh, Bird, he replaced Larry Brown who had left the Pacers um, and... Uh, his first year at the helm, Bird led the Pacers to a uh, fifty-eight and twenty-four record. That was the uh, their franchise best, or the NBA Indiana Pacers franchise best, because the ABA team had had, had won a few more uh, as well. But for the Indiana Pacers of the NBA, that was their franchise best at the time, um, and they made a good little playoff run. They even pushed the defending champion Chicago Bulls to a seven-game uh, series in the Eastern Conference Finals. So Bird initially, and, and if you look the prior year with Larry Brown, they had kind of been mediocre. So it was a nice little um, change of pace for Indiana, and they looked like they kind of had things going here. Uh, Bird won NBA Coach of the Year honors and became the only man in history at that point to win the MVP and coach of the year honors so MVP as a player and coach of the year as a coach uh, the following season, the Pacers went 33-17. and 17. Of course, this was the lockout-shortened season. Uh, they put everything together, though, in 2000. They uh, they won 56 games and reached the NBA Finals. Unfortunately, they were defeated by the Kobe Shaq-led uh, Lakers. And this was, shockingly, Larry uh, Bird's final game as head coach because when he signed, he said, I'm going to be here for three years, and that's it. And those three years were up, and he said, I'm out of here. So that was the end of Larry Bird. Yep, and he was uh, smart about... Uh Delegating a lot of the work to his assistants, including Rick Carlisle, who, um, you know, under, understanding that his strengths were not necessarily in the, uh, you know, the X's and O's and and things that they were, you know, much more in the uh, larger picture of things. And and when he became president of basketball operations of the uh, of the Pacers, coming back in two thousand and three, that is sort of the. Uh, 
took on a similar role. Um, they, of course, had a, a, a tremendous team during that time with uh, Jermaine O'Neal and Ron Artest and you know Reggie Miller toward the end and some other uh, top talent. And then the Mouse and the Palace, of course, derailed all of that. But uh, eventually they were able to rebuild after you know, a few years of struggle in the 2000s. They did pretty well in getting um, Danny Granger and then later on getting, um, of course, uh, Roy Hibbert and especially Paul George. Uh, and then he was named executive of the year in the uh, 2012 season. Uh, they he did take a year off um, after the 2012 draft. Um, decided to uh, that he was going to leave, but then I, almost executive the year later came back and was the uh, president of basketball operations again, which he has continued to be. Uh, been up and down a little bit in recent years. Obviously, they you know had, had some really good teams with uh, George and uh, Hibbard, you know, facing off against the. Uh, the heat and you know getting some good playoff battles um and then you know once paul george suffered his injury they sort of restuggled to constitute a new team around him they're sort of average uh, this year but i would say the best move would be of selecting paul george in the 2010 draft they also got lance stevenson that year in the second round as a 40th pick not not too bad obviously lance uh, flamed out but for a couple years he was pretty strong uh the worst move some good candidates here but i i think it's the uh uh, the, the trading white for black uh, trade of uh, acquiring um, Mike. Dun- <laughs> hey, Ike Diago is black. That's Hold true. On. That's true. Uh, the uh, but yes, overall most right. Tr- trading Mike Dun or getting Mike Dunleavy and Troy Murphy and trading away Al Harrington, um, Stephen uh, uh, Jackson, uh, Sarunish Javikavis, and uh, and Josh Powell. So. Um, yeah, that, they got much it, grindier. They got much more <laughs> annoying and grindier in like one move. So that right. that was definitely true. But uh, they needed that annoying that annoying grindy team was the first one that kind of made a, a playoff push though. So that, then they eventually got you know of course when when George emerged and yeah. Granger was still at his you know peak of his powers and Hibbert or whatever. But that first little grindy Pacers team that, that's the one that got them to the. You know, got them starting with their little playoff run. And they were a fun team as well. One thing I've always liked about this era of the Pacers is they kind of did it uniquely. Because a lot of times, you know, you got to kind of tank. And everybody knows the best way to, you know, be great in the NBA or, 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 you know, make that completely transform your your organization is to be bad for a little while, get, you know, a superstar, a top, you know, pick or whatever, and move up the ladder that way. Well, they were always like, they stayed competitive almost while they were rebuilding too, which is is a unique thing. And it helped that Paul George, you know, is the 10th overall pick, which is not a, you know, a, a, a super late pick, but not a really early pick either. And him emerging as a superstar was a huge part in them, you know, rebuilding while also still being okay, which was a cool thing for that franchise too, because they, you know, they still have problems with attendance even when they're good. So like a, a prolonged period of them being bad for five or six years would, would might, you know, really, really hurt that franchise. And then luckily they really haven't had that underbird. They've always been kind of okay, but at the same point, they've never really been title contenders either, except for maybe one or two years uh, with George um, at the peak of his powers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So next we have uh, George Mikan. Speaking of George, um, of course, one of the uh, great players of the uh, 40s and 50s um, had uh, led his teams to uh, seven championships in eight years, if you include the uh, NBL and BAA and, of course, the NBA once those two leagues merged. And, um, you know, you can't say enough of him, of course, about him being the great player of his time and the, uh, you know, basically the face of the uh, league. And... Um, uh, the other things did not go quite as well for him. Um, he was an executive before he was a coach, which is unusual. So we'll talk about the executive um, stuff first. But um, he he was basically from 55, 56 after he retired um, 
he uh, he was you know the executive on record for the uh, team. Uh, the the best move he made during that time was in the 1955 draft, uh, selecting Dick Garmaker in the uh, first round. And we talked about him in our uh, Forgotten All Star show, where he had, I think he had four All Star appearances in like five seasons. Didn't, his career didn't last long, but he was you know a pretty acclaimed player for his day, even though the Lakers struggled during those years. Uh, the worst move was uh, a, a a large scale trade that sent uh, Slater Martin to the Knicks for. Uh, main piece there was Walter Dukes and that was not a good uh, uh, talent exchange for the Lakers. Slater Martin still had some strong years. He ended up going to the St. Louis Hawks pretty soon after that and then keying them to their you know um, finals runs against the um, Celtics at the end of the 50s and early 60s. Of course, Jerry Bird in there too. So that, that's always good. Jerry Bird. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and and Phil Jordan too. Not I know. Michael. I love those yeah. like Jerry Bird, and Phil Jordan, like a little like yes. like if people had just known, like if you had known at the time, like I don't know. Jerry Bird played eleven games in, in the league and was yes. not, not very good at yeah. basketball at all. So not a not a large uh, a huge miss there, but uh, still no. six six. Yeah, six six Jerry yeah, Bird. Jerry Bird. Yeah, good little shooter, <laughs> a little outside shooter from Corbin, Kentucky. Yeah, it was just there the Hick go. from Corbin. You know, <laughs> yeah. the old his old nickname, the famous nickname, the Hick from uh, Corbin, Kentucky. So. Exactly. Yes, very famous. So, uh, eventually, um, the Lakers coach uh, John Cundla became general manager. Decided uh, to make Mike and the coach of the Lakers not so good. Uh, they were nine and thirty that year. They still had Vern Mickelson was kind of the last holdover of those um, of the dynasty teams. Larry Faust had uh, come over. Uh, they also had Slick Leonard, of course, who would later be the uh, coach of the uh, Pacers, Frank Selvey, and Hot Rod Hunley. Uh, they were 1953 that year, one of the worst seasons in Lakers history. They did end up getting Elgin Baylor, however, and turning things around there. But by that point, uh, Mikan was no longer in the uh, picture. No, yeah, so not, not a great tenure on, on really either end for Mike and that. Yeah. But uh, he, he definitely made everything right uh, as a commissioner of the ABA, though. So that, yeah. that all worked out real well. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe it didn't work out the best, but he did. Uh, no, uh, he, he did uh, a couple of good things he did were. Um, uh, of course, uh, we've talked about it before. We're uh, instituting the uh, three point line and uh, popularizing the red, white, and blue ball. So, yeah, no, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I'm pro Mike in as, as ABA commissioner. A lot of stupid stuff too, but I, I think mostly good stuff too. He he was not uh, he, he he was willing to take risks, and I think that was the huge part of of what was important about whoever would was going to be the commissioner of the ABA is to to want to be different, and and Mike always did want to be different as commissioner there. So I yeah. can't really complain about that too much. So. Exactly. So uh, so next is Willis Reed. Um, he was, of course, the the great Knicks uh, player. Uh, was MVP, two time NBA champion. The of course, the courageous, you know, coming down the tunnel in Game Seven uh, moment when he's dealing single-handedly winning the game for the right, Knicks, of right, course. yes, exactly, according to the legend, carrying that, that Clyde Frazier on his back, <laughs> right, you know, yeah, exactly. Clyde tells it all the time. That same story, you know. Clyde had nothing that game and just needed Willis to do everything. So absolutely. So um, five-time All NBA uh, player, uh, Hall of Famer, all that good stuff. Um, as a coach, did not work out quite as well. No, he uh, he replaced uh, replaced Red Holzman uh, in 1977. He led the Knicks to a respectable uh, 43 and 39 record. Uh, then the next season, Reed left the team 14 games into the season. Uh, they were six and eight at that point. Uh, Holzman took back the reins, and he would stay there for an additional four years. That was kind of the end of, of Willis Reed as New York Knicks head coach, but not the end of uh, Willis Reed as coach. He then was the head coach at Creighton University from 1981 to 85, uh, a volunteer assistant coach at St. John's University, um, and then also later in his career served as the uh, an assistant coach for the Sacramento Kings and Atlanta Hawks. And then in 1988, you know, almost 11 or uh, almost exactly 11 years after. 
after I became a coach of the Knicks. Uh, he returned as coach of the New Jersey Nets. Uh, this was one week after the Nets star forward and his cousin, Orlando Woolridge, was suspended by the league and, and was uh, to undergo drug rehabilitation, uh, too. So that was kind of interesting. But um, uh, Reed went 7-21 and 21 in just 20, uh, 28 games uh, during his debut uh, and followed that up with a disappointing 26-56 and 56 record the following season and then was relieved of his duties. So that was the end of Willis Reed, the coach. But it's not, not you know, he, he, he resurrects his career a little bit. Don't worry. Yes. In fact, he's hired immediately as the uh, general manager and vice president of <laughs> right. basketball operations. So look, you suck, but maybe you're better at this. And yeah, you know, yeah, I, uh, that I'd wasn't, say, yeah, yeah th- that wasn't that uncommon in the seventies and the eighties. And even I think somewhat in the sixties where they, they would, you know, they would fire the coach, but they would promote them upstairs because general manager was not thought of as the necessarily the, you know, uh, senior position or the, the more coveted position a- at that point, because there was a lot of travel, a lot of scouting, a lot of, you know, c- kind of the, the grunt work that we think of now in, in terms of more of, you know, the scouting role as opposed to and like the, you know, mundane business role as opposed to the, you know, the team shaping role was an aspect of it, but there was, you know, a, a lot of crappy aspects to it as well. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily as coveted uh, as it, you know, as it kind of is now, even though obviously it's a, it's a hard job now, but it's, you know, it's a hard job with status now yeah exactly so um he did he did some strong things actually uh he drafted a Derek coleman and kenny anderson uh, acquired Drazen petrovich and they were the nets were a solid team in the early 90s they had uh, chuck daly as their coach and uh, looked like they were up and coming unfortunately the Drazen petrovich death uh you changed the course there um and uh, he ended up kind of having more of a senior position, you know, more more of an honorary role um, later on with the Nets, and then the um, and then later on with the Hornets. But was it was more of a you know um, not as a basketball decision making role as much of more of just a you know kind of an ambassador type thing. So, um, but the Nets eventually, you know, they built themselves into a pretty good team in the uh, in in the took a while, but in the early two thousands, of course, made the finals two years in a row. Um, I would say the best deal was acquiring Drazen Petrovic. They did not have to give up all that much. Um, they traded uh, Greg Anderson, and they also got Terry Mills out of it for a couple seasons before he, you know, had had some pretty good time in uh, Detroit. And uh, and they they did give up a first round pick, but yeah, I mean, obviously Drazen ended up you know becoming a legend in his short time with the uh, Nets. Um, and I would say the worst move was uh, November 3rd, 1992. They traded away uh, Mookie Blaylock and Roy Hinson to the Hawks for Ramil Robinson, who was a notorious Boston. Mookie Blaylock obviously was a uh, really good player in the 90s for the Hawks. Yeah, that's a good one, too. And, and I, I, uh, Reed also became the vice president of uh, basketball operations for the New Orleans Hornets um, in 2004 as well and stayed there until 2007. So he had a little bit of a post-Nets career uh, yes. as well. But. Yes, indeed. Um, so speaking of Louisiana, Bill Russell. Yes, he. Uh, we've talked about Bill Russell a few times on this uh, podcast. Perhaps. Have we? I don't remember. <laughs> did we? I don't. When did possible. we do that? Yeah, it's, it's possible. Was there like an entire series of episodes that we did focusing on one player in this particular case, Bill Russell? I don't. I don't think so. But okay. I mean, if you say so, Jason. Possibly. So, eleven-time um, NBA champion, five-time NBA. It was MVP. WrestleMania for people. That it, it was. Yes. Yes. It was WrestleMania. Yeah, going for it. It's good. Good little series. But anyway, go on. Uh, so he um, he was player coach of the uh, of the Celtics in um, sixty six uh, or sixty seven sixty eight and sixty nine. They won the championships in the final two years, and um, in the first year they broke their streak of eight straight uh, titles. Um, 
then he uh, he, he left uh, and cut all his ties with the uh, Celtics. It was out of the game for a while. The 1973, uh, he was lured back by uh, Sam Shulman of the uh, Seattle Supersonics, the owner with this uh, a, a huge, you know, godfather type offer of, of, of big money and total control and, and and all that sort of thing. He accepted it. Um, they had some good moments. They did have their first playoff berth in franchise history. They, you know, they, they were... They were, they were pretty good, but it kind of ended in some disappointment and acrimony. Uh, 162-166 overall record, so you know they were overall a fairly mediocre team. And then immediately afterward, the next season, they would uh, eventually get Lenny Wilkins and they would go win a championship. So, um, so it, it, it's uh, perhaps a little bitter for that to have um, happened. And then even worse situation, he, um, 1987, after uh, several years as an announcer, he went back to uh, the NBA with the Sacramento Kings. And uh, the less said about that, the uh, better. They were 17 and 41 in 58 games before he um, was no longer the coach. But he did, uh, he was an executive for another uh, couple, season and a half or so. And yeah, was not, uh, not, not the best run for, for old Bill. <laughs> No, yeah, the best move, uh, probably LaSalle Thompson and Randy Whitman to the Indiana Pacers, Wayne Tinsdale. Uh, Tinsdale was a big part of that team for a few years um, as well. Uh, worst move, uh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, so I know you here pick two, which is, is a good thing. Probably more than two that you can pick, but uh, probably the worst, trading Otis Thorpe uh, to the Rockets for Rodney McCray and Jim Peterson. And then also I think the one of the worst ones of all time is Purvis Ellison as the number one overall pick in the 1989 NBA draft. That uh, did not work well at all. <laughs> was, Purvis was off the team after, you know, very quickly. We talked about him not that long ago when we talked about Anthony Bennett and and, and worst, uh, you know, number one overall picks. And Purvis is, is right up there as, as, as one of the worst of all time. So, yeah. And in fairness, that is a notoriously terrible draft. So right, uh, Danny Ferry was number two, and he was like also not a very good pick. And, and like, yeah, you really got to go to like four. You know, Sean Elliott I, I, is top five. Glenn Rice is top five, but you're not getting any stars. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of who, what guy is like the most. I mean, I, okay, if you if you sort by win shares, it's kind of funny here. So if you sort by win shares, Vladdy Divac is the most, the highest, and he was picked 26th. The second highest is Clifford Robinson. He was picked 36th. And then the third highest is uh, Sean Kemp. And he was, you know, of course, you know, way later in the draft as well. So, yeah, nobody in the top 10 was was really worth all that much. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No one in the Hall of Fame here, actually. Um, although one, uh, Tim Hardaway, uh, who had the fifth most win shares of this class, is a finalist for the Hall of Fame. Megan, and we're going to talk about him uh, very soon in an upcoming episode. But other than that, yeah, there's, um, you know, it, it's after 10 or 11 players, it, it gets pretty uh, bad pretty quickly. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. So, um, yeah, Purvis is 17 in win shares in this draft. Like one of the biggest busts of all time is still in the top 20 of win shares in his, his entire. Uh, that's that's impressive. So. Yes, yes, for, well, impressive is definitely a word for it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, he had 20 points again that one year. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think the ball. I think they won like 10 games that year, or something like that, or uh, 25 with the guy that we're gonna talk about here in a little bit. So anyway, yeah, well, there go you go. Ahead. There you go. So our uh, next player, uh, Isaiah Thomas, uh, always a favorite here on the Over and Back <laughs> NBA podcast. Of course, two-time champion with the uh, um, with the Pistons and 12-time All-Star, five-time All-NBA type player. Um, lots of good stuff as a player and uh, as a coach and as a GM, not, not, not so much. <laughs> uh, why don't you take the coaching and I'll take the GMing. Okay, well, it, it's a, completely out of order. It's hard to do an order here because he bounces around a bunch oh, of yeah. times, but but – 
do you want to, well, do you want to start with executive and then, uh, sure. then go to coach? Well, or, well, well, yeah. I say it's impossible to figure out well, why he kept getting all these jobs. I have no fucking clue, but uh, right. he bounces all over the place. So just, stick with us here. We'll try to add dates to all this, but all right. uh, he bounces yes. many times. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll start with that then. Yes. Okay. Uh, so he retires after um, suffering, I think it was an ACL injury that basically ended his career. Uh, he then became part owner and executive vice president for the Toronto Raptors in uh, 1994, uh, was there for four years and then left after a dispute with new management. Um, he uh, th- there was some good there, actually uh, drafted Damon Stoudemire, Marcus Camby, and most importantly, um, I, which I think is the, by far the best move of his um, uh, of his career as a, an executive was drafting Tracy McGrady out of high school, which is a, a pretty big risk at the time. And um, he was you know one of the first um, it was the, the third season of high schoolers being um, taken you know after uh, Garnett, of course, in '95 and. and um, Isaiah seriously considered taking Garnett and basically didn't because of, you know, where the uh, team was in his, um, you know, where, where it was at that point and the risk that was involved in, in doing that. But he did have an eye certainly for um, talent. That's one thing he was always uh, fairly good at. But yes, so, so so things ended there. And then, of course, the Raptors uh, struggled for the uh, first few years under his uh, stewardship, you know, pre Vince Carter. Absolutely. And then the year 2000, Isaiah Thomas is hired by the Indiana Pacers to take over for the departing Larry Bird. Um, so, of course, Indiana, as we mentioned with the Bird part, uh, they had made it to the NBA Finals the year prior. Unfortunately, under Thomas, the Pacers fell to 41 and 41. Uh, they were 42 and 40 the next season. Uh, in his third and final season as head coach of the Pacers, uh, they went 48 and 34, uh, but were eliminated in the first round of the playoffs by the six seeded uh, Boston Celtics. So, um, definitely a interesting part here with this this uh, Pacers team because uh, in the offseason uh, Larry Bird became the Pacers president of basketball operations and his first act was to replace Thomas with former Detroit Pistons head coach Rick Carlisle a guy who was an assistant under him and almost immediately the Pacers started doing a lot better and, and a lot of people did point to you know Isaiah Thomas not necessarily being ready for that aspect of his career to be a head coach especially on a team that was was getting there and, and they had a bunch of really good young talent as well as as well as some other old you know of course your Reggie Millers or whatever your, your veteran talent as well but a team that immediately then you know post Isaiah started having some really really good seasons put together uh, but yeah that was uh, that was that and um, in June of 2006 uh, oh, wait, Knicks, wait, you're, you're, oh sorry oh we bounced yeah. again damn yeah. it yeah. I forgot god damn it so, Isaiah yes. I forget yeah of course yes so god. It's Donnie. Okay. Donnie. It's okay. Donnie. It's all right. Dolan. Dolan. Yeah. Donnie was good in this situation. Yeah. No, Donnie's fine. Donnie's fine. Dolan. So in uh, in, in December 2003, uh, the New York Knicks hire Isaiah Thomas as president of basketball operations. Yeah. It, not good. Because of course they did. <laughs> yes. There's uh, a, a lot of terrible trades, which a couple of which we'll uh, talk about uh, bringing in, um, you know, washed up high price uh, stars like uh, Stefan Marbury and um, – Steve Francis and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, some some of the worst uh, cap management and uh, trades in uh, NBA history. And in, in, in fairness to him, you know, uh, probably just operating with what you know Jim Dolan wanted him to do. Uh, however, you know, also a huge sexual harassment uh, scandal and lawsuit that uh, goes on uh, during the time that he's personally involved in. So. Uh, uh, so not great. And eventually uh, Jim Dolan, um, after uh Thomas and Coach Larry Brown have feuded for the a part of the season, a situation which Larry Brown had uh, certainly his part in and a fault in as well. It wasn't completely <laughs> Isaiah there, but uh, eventually uh, Dolan decides to make Thomas the uh, coach, you know, which makes a, a certain amount of sense, you know, give him, okay, this is the team you built together, now try to coach them. And um, 
uh, yeah, I, that didn't go great either. Um, although he probably was a little bit more suited to be a coach than he was to be an executive. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And it's good to know that the uh, the Knicks have finally calmed down, and, and now they're just a well run <laughs> tight oh, yeah. ship operation Definitely. too. Yeah. So it's good to know that you know after this debacle, they said, "All right, let's get this thing together, let's go." And and they've been you know uh, just a pillar of success since then. So it's really good. Um, yeah. So in June 2006, the Knicks fired uh, head coach Larry Brown and owner James Dolan, replaced him with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, he put some weird ultimatums on him that they needed progression and all sort of thing. Well, they didn't do that great because the Knicks struggled. Uh, they went 33 and 49, then 23 and 59 in Thomas's two years as coach um then he was kind of let go but thankfully Dolan just never lets Isaiah go too far because then he served as a consultant to the team reporting it directly to Donnie Walsh who I'm imagining just threw every memo in the trash immediately um and then that was the end of uh, Isaiah Thomas now he he then did you know he's at FIU and um as a coach and then I know he did the New York Liberty as, as something or another I, I don't yeah, know he's, he is with Liberty still days. yeah is he so, still at the Liberty I'll call yes. him okay cool yeah, so, I thought he'd get bored of that within like two days but so, that's good enough yeah so he's in Madison Square Garden yeah of course you know having a um you know, a guy who was sued for sexual harassment as the, uh, you know, oh, God, I didn't even le- think of that. He's yeah. still in the same building. Right. Oh, yeah. Not, uh, <laughs> not totally ideal, but, uh, anyway, can't let him go. Can't let Thomas Isaiah go. I mean, no, when you make great trades, like the one you're going to talk about here in a minute. You can, you yeah. Know. You know, when you, when you love someone, you set them free <laughs> and then let them come back and run your women's basketball team. That's exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah the, that's the old adage. Yes. yes the, right. The adult adage. So, so um, yeah, the, the worst trade, and there's definitely a lot to uh, choose from, but I think this is a pretty obvious one is, um, Trading away um, – the, the main pieces were Mike Sweetney, Tim Thomas, no big loss there. But then the uh, a 2006 first-round pick that ended up being LaMarcus Aldridge and then a, a 2007 first-round pick that ended up being um, Joachim Noah. And um, that was for – I don't know why I always want to say – even though I know it's Joachim Noah and I hear it a million times, I don't know why I want to say Joachim first. I, <laughs> I, I, that, that's a weird uh, mental thing for me. I don't know why. But anyway, um, Joachim Noah – and uh, he was traded for um, – they, they acquired Eddie Curry and uh, a 2007 first-round draft pick, Wilson Chandler. Eddie Curry was the huge prize here, and then he ended up you know, having this huge contract that they couldn't insure because he had this heart issue. And Which they knew about before because it, it was very well known. Right, <laughs> so yeah. Um, and uh, you know, he just ended up being a, a, a basically a total disaster, getting almost you know, maybe a, a year of okay play out of him before you know things went really bad. Um, they didn't get much out of Tony Davis. He, he was a good player, but he was you know, kind of advanced in his career at that point. Uh, they did get Wilson Chandler out of it, I, I guess. You know, which was uh, pretty good, and you know, ended up he's been a good player for his career for you know a little bit with the Knicks and of course with uh, Denver. But um, yeah, that was uh, losing out on those two. Uh, you know, first round draft picks that were both excellent picks was uh, uh, pretty bad. I mean, they did get Joe Kimno eventually, so you know, yay. Yeah, and if it makes anybody feel better, the Bulls immediately traded Lamarcus Aldridge for Tyrus Thomas. So that's true. So if that may, if there's any silver lining for Knicks yeah. fans, is that the Bulls screwed it up too? So there, there you go. Yeah. So I, I'm going to say, man, Tyrus Thomas looked like he was going to be really good. Yeah, like, I. Yeah. That's one that fooled me. Like, cause he just, I, I mean, he, he had the, he had the length, and he he just had the shot blocking, and he had, uh, you know, and I was far less sophisticated about basketball, you know, watching at the time. Not that I'm so it's like fair. Ex- no, because Lamarcus now, was but, like slow and kind of boring, and like, and he yeah. still kind of is. You know what I mean? Like, Marcus Aldridge yeah. isn't like a player I, that like jumps off the page at you. But yeah, Tyrus was especially the the problem was that NCAA tournament. He was awesome for LSU, and he was just all over the place. He was hustling, dunking, getting rebounds, ever, and, yeah. and it was it was like people were just enamored with this guy's skill. And then, yeah, of course, he uh, 
he, like many players, decided, you know, I'm really good at taking jump shots. It's like, yeah, you're really not. The, you know, the Josh no. Smith school of, right. of, you know, I should take more jump shots. I don't know why I, I, I don't know why I hustle and cut to the basket when I could just take an 18 foot jump shot all the time. So, yeah, I mean, he just was a guy who looked like he had every athletic tool, and he's yeah, like, yeah, when I saw him at LSU, you know, for a handful of games, probably if that, he, yeah, I mean, he just looked like he played hard. It looked like he would be a real, you know, good player. And actually, yeah. production wise, he wasn't that bad at first, and then yeah, eventually it. Uh, you know, whatever the, the the effort waned or whatever happened there. And uh, yeah, it was uh, not not a good decision. No, no. He would always have these like he would have a spot like it'd be like a week where he'd have like really good games You're like, all right, here we go. And then you just get dumb and like do really stupid things after that. But uh, yeah, it ended up. Uh, yeah, not not a great run, but uh, ended up being a, a serviceable player. But of course, not not LaMarcus Aldridge. So, yes. Um, so I would say the um, all right. I'm, I'm sorry. Um so next we have Wes Unselt, and uh, he was, uh, of course, you know, the Great Bullets uh, star um, MVP, won a championship in 78, and uh, they, they went to the uh, finals on uh, four occasions when he was uh, there in the 70s. And um, uh, then he eventually uh, went on to become the uh, coach of the team late in the 80s. Yeah, he uh, assisted the uh, the Bullets in the 87-88 season under Kevin Lockery. Uh uh, Unseld then he took over after 27 games and led the Bullets to a, a respectable 30 and 25 record. Uh, at this point, the Bullets were the two-headed Malones with uh, the aging Moses and the emerging Jeff Malone. Uh, the team also had uh, this this particular team had Bernard King and a very young Manute Bull as well, who had still not really kind of figured out exactly what he was going to do in the NBA or, or where he kind of fits. Uh, later would you know of course uh, be a very serviceable player, even though he had you know his, of course his, his huge limitations. But uh, Unseld then assumed the full uh, coaching duties at the beginning of the 88-89 season and held that post until 93-94. So he held it for quite a while. Uh, unfortunately, he compiled a two uh, two oh two three. 345 overall record as the Washington franchise uh, began fading into obscurity, which they've only just, you know, in the last 10 years uh, basically came out of. But uh, yeah, a decent run there at the beginning, but then kind of fell on, on hard times later. Uh, but I, I think a decent head coach overall. I mean, given the talent levels of that team, uh, not ideal, but um, we'll, we'll get to that here in a moment because he uh, also did not help that <laughs> very much in the late 90s. But Right, right. So yes, he he became the general manager um, in 1996. Uh, they did make the playoffs in '97, which was the I think the first time in a while that they had made the uh, playoffs. Um, and um, it actually seemed like they had a promising team. They, they had uh, Chris Webber. Um, you know, they they had some young talent, but uh, made a, a a couple of rough moves. We'll, we'll say, say the, fir- the the best move first was um, October second, '96. They signed Ben Wallace as a free agent, and he actually played um, three seasons there. The first season did not play a whole lot, but the uh, second and third '98, '99 seasons, they, he actually did play. Uh, you know. Uh, quite a bit and, and, and was effective. It, it was not yet known what a defensive force he would become, but he you know was a stout rebounder and um, you know w- was pretty good there. Um, yeah, you could see the elements of what he would become too, and you saw it in Orlando too with this one season in Orlando where it's right. like yeah he didn't have all the refinement, but you could see that this dude was really good at getting rebounds and and doing those sort of things. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a good because I mean out of out of an obscure you know Virginia Union University, really an obscure player overall. So yeah, really good idea to kind of go grab him and, and bring him into the forefront of the NBA at the point when you know there was really no reason to ever sign a guy like a Ben Wallace or whatever. So yeah, definitely, definitely a solid pick there. Yes. Uh, the or solid pick up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the worst move I, I, I picked two. One was uh, May 14th, 1998, trading away Chris Weber to the Sacramento Kings for Mitch Richmond and Otis Thorpe. Uh, both guys, uh, pretty old and, um, 
and, and definitely, you know, past their prime. And Weber was, you know, in, in his mid mid to late mid twenties, twenty six, I think, or, or so, and you know, was about to, of course, you know, kick off the best run of his career, finally finding his his way in uh, Sacramento, and you know, being a uh, incredible player there. So that was definitely not a good situation. You know, I mean, Weber definitely had some um, you know issues with getting along with people early in his career. So they, their their hand may have been forced there, but that was a uh, a tough one to swallow. The other one. Um, was uh, trading away Ben Wallace along with Terry Davis, Tim Legler, and Jeff McGinnis to the Magic for Isaac Austin. So not much. Uh, <laughs> I don't get why yeah. you would make that move. I mean, they, you know, they didn't. They didn't know what they had with Ben Wallace, and there was no reason for them necessarily to know what they had in Ben but Wallace. Isaac so, Austin was terrible, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I mean, you know, he was. Right, yeah, he's better than Isaac Isaac Austin. So that they may need to clear some roster spots or whatever. There and Jeff McGinnis he had, had a few years of being a decent yeah, player right. too. So that was a uh, not a great one. The Weber one I think was uh, obviously more damaging than the uh, you know the Wallace one. Although I guess if Wallace had emerged the way that he you know had for Washington instead of Detroit, then that would have been pretty good. So, um, but yes, that that is about it for uh, for West Unsell. Yep, nothing else. Yes. So, uh, and saving the best for last, uh, Jerry West, I would say, has the best uh, combination of playing, coaching, and uh, uh, executiving uh, here, if that's a word, um, of anyone here. Uh, of course, was, um, you know, the the, the great uh, other Laker, along with Elgin Baylor in the 60s and early 70s, 14-time All-Star, uh, finally won an NBA championship after, uh, after many tries in 72. And uh, 12-time All-NBA uh, player, one of the one of the great guards of all time. Um, and then after retiring for the le- after retiring, some very strange uh, weirdness that led him to eventually become the uh, coach of the uh, Lakers. He actually uh, there was a um, lawsuit between him and the Lakers owner Jack Kent Cook after uh, West uh, decided to retire and then had a contract with the uh, team. And uh, eventually, the settlement of that team ended up with uh, West becoming the head coach of the team. So strange way to end it, but that's the way it worked out. Yeah, then after his coaching stint, uh, he worked as a scout for three years uh, before becoming general manager of the Lakers prior to the uh, 82-83 season. Uh, and then, yeah, you can really credit West for being instrumental in creating the great you know, 80s Lakers dynasty. They won titles in 80, 82, 85, 87, and 88. A uh, big part of him, you know, of course, the, the 85, 87, 88 team is probably the, the most credit to, to West of kind of putting his fingerprint on there as well. But, you know, scout before that, so he has some elements of that as well. Um then I think, uh, to his credit, too, he re-energized the Lakers in the mid-2000s as well. Of course, that team didn't win any titles. But uh, the team built around Vladi, uh, Cedric Sabalas, Nick Van Exel, um, you know, later acquiring Shaquille O'Neal, those sort of things. I mean, he actually won a uh, executive of the year in the mid-90s for, you know, bringing the Lakers back to relevance uh, as well. And between him and uh, head coach Del, Car- uh, Del Harris, uh, they got the Lakers to the Western Conference semifinals. And that's a team we've talked about uh, many, many episodes ago, about a team that really gets forgotten of, like, a, a pretty decent Lakers team in the mid uh, mid-90s there. Uh, of course, then later in the 90s, West trades Vladi Dibak for Kobe Bryant. Decent move. Uh, signs free agent Shaquille O'Neal. Also a very good move. And then acquires, you know, uh, six-time NBA champion head coach Phil Jackson to uh, be the front man of the Lakers. And that works out quite well for the old Lakers because then they end up winning a few titles there. Uh, 2002, he becomes uh, the general manager of the Memphis Grizzlies. And, of course, the Grizzlies don't have the success the success that the Lakers had. But I think West molded them into a pretty decent team. I mean, they, they you know, were a team that was a downtrodden franchise. Of course, had moved from, from Vancouver to Memphis. 
you know, he, he brings some stability there, and then he brings in guys like a Paul Gasol. He, you know, shrewd hirings like a uh, Hubie Brown as a head coach, you know, guys like a Jason Williams and stuff. Many do, decent moves throughout his tenure there and, and got them to become a, a, you know, a relatively decent playoff team or a team that at least was competing and not just in the doldrums of the league. Um, he retired as the Grizzlies uh, general manager in 2007, and then in May 2001, he joined up with the Golden State Warriors as an executive board member, uh, reporting directly to the new owners, Joe Lankham and Peter Gruber. So um, still does some stuff there, but obviously not not in the thick of everything there, just as an executive board member. But still, uh, great tenure as an executive, one, probably one of the I'm better. I mean, of all NBA executives of all time, he's right up there. And when you couple it in with you know an impressive uh, playing career as well, I mean, it's a really really great resume all around. So I would say the best moves. Um, I mean, really, the truly best moves are the you know the summer of '96 of getting Shaq as a free agent, making the cap clearing moves that were necessary for that, and then trading uh, Vlade Divac for Kobe Bryant, which was definitely he risked the time. Vlade was a very good player, and uh, you know, and, and Kobe, you know, he, he had talent, but there was questions about him certainly uh, whether it would work. And, and Jerry West was absolutely the one who believed in Kobe, and uh, and obviously worked out pretty fabulously for. Them. But uh, in the interest of, uh, you know, some less known trades, um, I, I think the best one probably of making, you know, something out of almost nothing was um, February 1987 trading uh, Frank Burkowski, uh Peter Goodmanson uh, and a, a 1987 first round pick and a 1990 second round pick for Michael Thompson. And that's a really underrated one in, you know, I mean, I, Thompson was the guy who kind of put them over the top to win the 87 and 88 championships and make the 89 finals. This was, of course, near the end of Kareem's career. He was definitely slowing down. They couldn't really, you know, um, rely on him necessarily, you know, full time anymore and, and be able to, um, you know, get as much out of him as they had. And also Thompson was able to kind of give them a different look, allowed them to do, you know, still do more fast breaking and do kind of the fast paced stuff that Kareem really couldn't do anymore. So that was a, that's kind of an underrated one in terms of, you know, maybe they do win another championship, you know, even after that, even without Thompson, but I don't think they win two in a row and go to three straight finals, you know, after that, I think he was, you know, able to put them over the top on that level. Yeah, I agree. And he added some much needed, you know, athleticism and length to that team as well. And a little bit of, I mean, he wasn't super young at that point. Uh, of course, he was, you know, in his 30s or whatever, but still played a, a really good role on that team. And yeah, I think uh, helped spell Kareem a little bit too. So yeah, I absolutely 100% agree with you that that, that he was a huge part in, in them uh, being able to kind of sustain that dynasty. Yes. So the uh, worst uh, move is the 1984 draft. Um, they had the uh, 23rd pick, which it was the last pick in that draft, and they selected uh, who is affectionately known as Earl Effing Jones, and uh, he was uh, <laughs> like he was like, about seven foot one, 190 pounds. He had played at a small college and had a lot of athleticism and a lot of talent, but you know he came into camp and. Um, he was completely clueless um, from uh, Jeff Perlman's books, Showtime, some of, some of the great quotes here. Um, so the uh, a seventh round pick for the team, uh, Richard Hainish, who was in camp there, said he would get dizzy every time he ran up and down the court. Whenever people asked him to compare himself to someone, he'd say Ralph Sampson. Right. If Ralph Sampson were soft and stupid. Um, wow. And yeah. he, he was described as um, – uh, his teeth were yellowed and rotting, and Pat Riley demanded that the Josh Rosenfeld, the media relations director, take him to the dentist. Um, and uh, he also um, 
was uh, it, it just completely just a failure on every level as far as just being a rookie screw up. Uh, there's some stories about uh, you know Magic Johnson just losing his patience with him and just throwing passes that would completely that would always knock him in the head. I mean, it was just um, you know um, it, it just completely uh, just wanted to get it out of there as. Uh, you know, as soon as possible. Um, and Jerry West said, no work ethic to speak of, a complete waste of talent, and the most disappointing draft pick I've ever been involved in. So, you know, he was not picked particularly high, so it's not necessarily, <laughs> you know, it may not be like literally the worst, but I think as far as the story goes, it's, uh, I, I think he's a good choice for the worst. I did love this little excerpt from Showtime as well. You, you included it in our notes here. It said, I, there was one day in training camp where uh, Dave Wall, who was uh, one of Pat Riley's assistant coaches, was asked to call Jones because Jones did not show up for practice. Uh, Wolf says, where are you? Jones replies, I overslept. Wolf says, well, grab a taxi and get over here. Jones says, a taxi? That's going to cost me $50. And then Wolf says, but Earl, it's going to cost you a $100 fine if you don't show up. Uh, Wolf says there was a lengthy pause, which was Earl doing the math, and then he never arrived. So that's, yes. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good incredible. one. Yes. <laughs> I love that story. Yes. Oh, boy. So um, a few other key ones. We're just going to uh, mention some names because we were obviously running pretty long here. But, uh, you know, uh, guys who have also done the trifecta, uh, Larry Brown, Dave DeBusher, Red Holzman, Dan Issel, Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, Kevin McHale, Don Nelson, Pat Riley, Doc Rivers, Bill Sharman, and Lenny Wickens. You know, a few other top 50 you know all-time players on that list. So obviously some great ones there. And then other guys who were, you know, lesser players um, or, you know, not quite as well-known. Uh, Mike Dunleavy. Danny Ainge uh, and, and Danny Ainge right now is of course you know he's he, it, it, when you listen to this he's probably going to be bragging about the trade that he almost made so we'll uh, we'll enjoy that from uh, Danny Ainge uh, of course watch him actually finally make a trade you know we're, we're, we're recording this before the trade deadline so watch him actually make the a trade and then make me look foolish but I'm willing to take the risk um, other guys Al Adels Al Bianchi uh, Vince Borla Alan Bristow ML Carr Doug Collins Mike D'Antoni Vinny Del Negro Bob Fierick Richie Guerin, Alex Hannum, Buddy Jeanette, Slick Leonard, Gene Littles, John Lucas, Jack McCloskey, Jack McMahon, Jim Paxson, Jim Pollard, Kevin Pritchard, Jerry Reynolds, Fred Schaus, Gene Sue, Rod Thorne, Butch Van Predikoff, Kiki Vandaway, Dave Wool, Larry Drew, Matt Gukas, George Johnson, Charles Jones, and Charles Smith. So that is all. You, you did a lot. Of, you did a lot of research in, uh, in in putting this list together. So it, it deserves to be shared. <laughs> it was not easy. Yes, unfortunately, it was it was much more difficult than when I uh, said we should do this topic. But anyway, it worked out. And now we have a complete list um, that we'll hopefully use ever again. I don't know how we're ever going to use this again. But if anybody wants this list, I can more than happy to send it to you because I spent a lot of time on it. So I'd, I'd be happy to share it with you. So anyway, I'm yes, sure there's some. Stuff, pro- yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a project we can use it for at some point, perhaps. So exactly, yeah, the, the Kevin Pritchard project that we're going to the oh, upcoming yeah. oh, summer yeah, series, yeah. breaking right. down every move that Kevin Pritchard ever made. So that'll absolutely. be absolutely that'll be real fun. That'll be, fun. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Rich. Well, we got anything else? Uh, no, I think we're all set. All right. Well, cool. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. And uh, hopefully you've been enjoying uh, the podcast. We've been giving more and more of them to you lately, kind of uh, adjusting our schedule. We're going to have more frequent episodes, which hopefully people are enjoying. You can find us at uh, thestepbackatfansided.com. You can also uh, find us on Facebook or Twitter. Just uh, it's at Over and Back NBA for both. And also you can subscribe to us and leave a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere you listen to your podcast. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon.